when you're involved in a uh, business or commerce or entrepreneurial deal, mm. there are always um, other factors. There are always, normally always, other people involved. Mm. And the combined consciousness of all the people involved is what makes the whole. And the whole has its own um, life of its own. It has its own consciousness. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I got to interview David Jamley, who is the co-founder and CEO of Theme Traders. Now today's interview is slightly different as we didn't interview a tech entrepreneur or a venture-backed business owner or a venture capitalist, but instead Theme Traders is an events management, party planning and prop hire company which David launched with his sister in 1989. The company grew out of their work as children's entertainers when they began to receive requests from parents to organise entire parties for adults. David never started off as an entrepreneur. He jumped out of school at the age of 15 just because he wasn't good at it and he just wanted to start working. This was a great interview as we learned from David how to grow a multi-million pound business without taking a single penny of investment and what it literally means to figure it out on the job. So David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Nice to be talking to you, Philip. Awesome. So, David, when you are out and about, um, if someone hasn't seen you on Secret Millionaires, um, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, I'm DJ. I'm the original DJ. Spin the decks. Music is my life. My life is music. Wow. Interesting. And so before we get into, I guess, theme traders and, and the awesome work you have done since, you know, 1989, um, walk me through your early life. So what were you doing in the early days and what was childhood like? So I was very lucky. I came from a, you know, a well-balanced um, family and I left school when I was 15, uh, much against the best wishes of my parents and everybody else. So I did quite well at school. But around when I was 15, it was like the real big cultural revolution, social revolution taking taking place around the whole world. A lot of it happening in London, emanating from London. And it was such an exciting time in terms of development of music, um, development of our society, development of birth pill, all sorts of stuff going on that I couldn't bear to be at school um, when I could be out there having lots of fun. Wow. So you left school at 15, and obviously I'm sure your parents were a bit confused as to why you were doing that. Um, so other than wanting to have fun, what else yeah. led you to want to leave school at 15? I didn't really like school. Um, I didn't like, I went to an all boys school and I much prefer to mix in a balanced society. Um, I liked music a lot in those days and I was in a band um, at age 17 on top of the pops, um, oh. didn't do very well, but nevertheless, <laughs> it's quite a big, big achievement to be on that, on that program with some other legendary stars. And 
I simply wanted to get out. I, I worked in my dad's shop. He had a army surplus shop, which was very fashionable um, at that particular era. And so I worked there. I did music on the side. And then I started doing social work as well on the side on a voluntary basis. And the years started rolling by. And so I guess working with your dad and, you know, having this band, is, is that kind of how, what led you into becoming a children's entertainer? I became a children's entertainer because um, I hadn't got a job and hadn't got any money. <laughs> and I was trying to just think of something that I could do to, uh, to earn some income without getting into a, a full-time, you know, nice five, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, I thought that'd be something I'd be quite good at because I've, I've done a bit of entertaining. I mean, this sort of entertaining music is, is entertaining and playing the bands is entertaining people. And at that time, it was a bit of, it's a very, very small way, of course. It was sort of a bit of an emerging thing because mm. there were some people around who had got money who could afford to have like children's um, clown at their party and they'd be willing to do pay money to do that so i used to get like 50 or 80 pounds that in those days would be like 100 dollars 120 dollars something mm. um, for doing a show and i did that with my sister as well um in the main although i did you know some of it on my own as well yeah and that sort of segued into the events business because at that time there, there, a lot of money wasn't being spent on lavish events and people weren't breaking out and you know throwing money around in their social lives because it was still only like 20 years you know 30 years after the war you know yeah. and so things hadn't actually you know got back to normal I'm gonna say but they were beginning to and so through doing um, entertaining for um, children's parties the parents who could afford to employ me um would sometimes ask well can you do this and can you do that as well mm. i work at a firm in the city a law firm and can you uh, come along and make some cocktails for us or can you come along and uh dress the place with palm trees or something and the answer to all those questions in those early years was yes <laughs> um, having having no idea how to do any of it um but why not um it's new territory um, if somebody can do it, why can't I do it? Yeah, well, so I'll do it. And also, in generalizations, um, retrospectively, reflectively, when you're at the beginning of a cycle of something in commerce or socially, then uh, that often is the time when great ground can be, be made. So when people are asking for things which aren't out there or are hard to come by, that automatically tells you there's demand. Mm. And then after the demand normally comes lots of people seeing a demand being met and they all um, follow, um, often very successfully, yeah. after the new ground has been sort of set. So even in a terribly small way, um, doing entertaining for children all those many years ago was a little innovatory and then doing the decorations and the production and the um, lavishness 
for events sort of bolted onto that. That's so interesting. It got increasingly bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. So initially, when you and your sister, I guess, started yeah. off as um, yeah. children entertainers, and you were just you know yeah. collecting you know a hundred quid a day or yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, were so. you and you didn't want to take a nine to five because obviously who wants to do a nine to five? Were you thinking, oh, we're just going to do wrong this? With nine to fives, by the way. Pardon? <laughs> but you know, but it's just, it, nothing wrong with nine to five. No, of course. It, it particularly suit you know suit where my head was at. Yeah, and so I guess were you doing um, the children entertainments business because you just needed to get some money in and you're working on like another thing, like a main thing, and you just needed to like keep the lights on, or were you literally just figuring stuff out and you thought I'm going to do this because it's like a not nine to five I can get some money in at that time it was purely how can I earn some money yes I think I can do that and then doing it and finding out that I could do it pretty well so you weren't working on so you okay so you weren't working on like a business idea no there's no no big business plan okay so Um, then but go on so then you, so you and your sister, it, you know, people ask you to do things and the demand is building. So then I guess all, to, all of a sudden you had a business, right? Yes, suddenly, yeah. So then like, how, when did you establish that, oh, we actually have a business here. We need to take this a bit more seriously. Well, when using the example I gave a couple of minutes ago, um, when we had to bring back the six palm trees from the function in the city, and think about what to do with them. And what we did was to rent initially one garage, which turned into 50 garages within three or four years, and store the palm trees. So it it sort of, in a way, it was vaguely organic. Um, And we were going with the flow of something a new business that was beginning to happen in those days because that sort of business, as I said, didn't really exist. So we were right at the forefront. And, there, and again, you know, I'd like to say, oh, yeah, we were really clever and we sat down with spreadsheets and we worked <laughs> out how to get a loan from the bank and, you know, and we read business books and all that, but that wasn't the case. The um, case was that um, it was running with, with the tide, um, having fun doing it, and the exciting new business and it's sort of organically just growing and growing and growing by itself very little time to even sit back and say oh my god we've got some money in the bank or oh my god we've you know got 50 you know garages full of stuff now so it really was working with um, the passion of the involvement in something new and vibrant that was the driver Mm. Lots, lots of people come at it from the other angle, obviously, was what you asked the question, um, which is that you come at it from the money angle. You might come at it from the success, the profit angle. Coming at it from that angle tends, from my experience, to um, destroy a lot of the love and joy of doing it. Mm. And if you're just doing it and you're enjoy, enjoying doing it, you know, like a plant growing, like a flower growing, you know, then it doesn't get you know, worse, it gets better and looks better and, and it grows. And so most of the stuff I've done is through, in my life, is through wanting to do it and then put the passion in and then, you know, the bucks build up behind that.
So how were you in the early days, um, you know, how were you pricing some of your events? I mean, like, like you said, you and your sister were going into like a birthday party collecting a hundred quid. Um, yeah. How did that, how did you price the law firm that asked for the six palm trees, for example? And then how did you go on growing and, you know, becoming more sophisticated with your pricing? So nowadays, obviously, we have very complex spreadsheets which um, evaluates the amount of time at what level um, is put into a project, the costs involved, um, the risks involved, etc., etc., etc. So nowadays, we, Theme Traders is a very um, sophisticated events company, um, still at the top of what it does. In those days, it was, well, how much do you think we should charge? Um, have you heard of anybody else doing this? And then working on not not optimal pricing, but what just seemed to be the right pricing. Mm. And since in the early days, the only factor was my time um, and Kim's time, um, we could do it at sort of what we wanted. Um, with a business head, um, obviously, we were trying to um, have enough money in the bank to keep going forward and to be able to buy the 40 palm trees when they want 40 instead of six so i'd like to say at that stage it was you know totally professional calculation but it wasn't it was it was to do with um marketplace and market pricing right. and a lot a lot of a lot of larger companies now um do actually you know obviously have to take great great regard for what is going on in the marketplace as particularly as we're in such a global marketplace now and so but you, that, those days it wasn't like that no wow no i can imagine and so you guys grew pretty organically so you weren't doing any marketing at any point it was all word of mouth or did you at one point say look let's grow this uh, nominal nominal marketing mainly word of mouth so if for example a event organizer you, you mentioned earlier that's your um your friend in London is an event organiser. If an event organiser asked us, asked us for something, we would normally say yes and then worry about how to do it afterwards. Mm. And having said that, we normally did it very, very well afterwards as well. Uh, but once somebody has asked us for something, then I would think, okay, fine. So they asked us for a um, set of fairground stalls to go indoors at a venue in London. And then we do it, it'd be successful. And I think, okay, fine. Well, they asked because there's a need there. So my marketing would then be to uh, send a flyer in those days, obviously not, you don't do it like that now, um, to the other event organizers in London and say, hey, we've got these indoor market stalls. And from a limited marketing like that, very niche marketing, um, we had a huge response. But in terms of mass marketing, no, we've we've never really been, um, you know, sort of too focused on that. In recent years, with social media, I guess you call that mass mass marketing. But in terms of serious campaigns, we've we've always tended to have enough coming through um, through word of mouth primarily to uh, make it all stack up. And in terms of you know finance in this company, um, how? Yeah. Were you going about financing this company? Did you take investment? Did you bootstrap? It sounds like 
you had kind of like organic growth. So how were you funding this? I'm sure you couldn't, uh, you know, afford the six palm trees with the the hundred pound gigs you were getting initially. <laughs> yeah, we we funded it through um, very tight credit control. So we would, you know, not go out on a limb um, and take a risk on anything in terms of being paid afterwards. We would primarily get it up front and we could dictate even in those days because there weren't a lot of people to go to. Mm. Um, we haven't ever um, taken loans from the bank to expand. Um, if we've thought about wanting to take a big leap forward in terms of inventory or in terms of um, premises or in terms of capital expenditure, um, we've tried to do it mainly from um, cash flow. So waiting six months, stacking up the cash and then taking a, taking the bite ourselves, really. Mm. Um, the only time in my life I've ever um, done big bank loans, and there have been quite vast bank loans, is buying various properties. Um, but that's a sort of different thing. So you guys also own properties to do events? Um, through different companies. Um, I, I'm involved in having lots of properties, yep, with Kim, yep. And that's, that has been financed through doing events over the years. Right. And so Kim, younger sister or older sister? Kim is three years younger. So, so I'm, I'm a big brother. Big brother. So how has that been, you know, having a co-founder, which is also your younger sister? It's um, one of the most lovely things to do in life, to work with siblings, family. Um, it's also one of the most challenging things in life. Mm. And most business books would say, don't do it. Um, but as in, as in absolutely everything in this universe, there's there's the black and white, the yin and yang. There's you know there's there's two sides to the coin. And from my experience, it's been great. I um, had a fantastic time. Um, it's particularly one of the real big pluses is that um, you have somebody that is highly unlikely to going to say they're highly likely to cover your back. They're highly unlikely to. I'm going to say, work against you in some way. Mm. So that's a real, real big um, plus. Um, yeah, and yeah, personal choice on that, I guess, really. Yeah. I mean, Kim's actually not doing it any long. She's taking a, a bit more of a leisurely life, um, <laughs> which is great. Um, I'm, still, I'm still doing um, the sort of 24-7, but, but not every week of the year now. So, Good. And what have been... What were some of the challenges in the early days? Um, I guess not having industry expertise, if you will. I mean, back then there were no industry expertise anywhere. So how, like, what were some of the challenges you guys experienced during the growth? The, the biggest challenge uh, is meeting expectations. So when you're in a creative field, it's very challenging to get the psychology right. In other words, you, Philip, you go in somewhere and you want your portrait painted by somebody. Mm. Um, you have a rough idea of their style. You tell them 
that you might want to hang it above your mantelpiece to make yourself good look look good to your relatives or whatever yeah. and then they do the painting and the painting can very often not meet your expectations so in the creative field same way as a, as a you know broadway show can bottom out in a week you know that getting understanding the expectations of the people you are working with and for that's that is and remains the hardest thing to do and the only way to do that is through having a is to be somebody who actually cares about what they're doing so if you only care about the money then you ain't gonna work out the expectations um, correctly you can have a guess you might be right you might be wrong but to do it consistently over a period of years as we do um, you have to really understand the person you are working with and you really have to understand the people that you are working alongside to create um, a, a world-class production does that make sense yeah no that makes um complete sense and um I guess in terms of the the can you give an example of where you did not meet someone's expectations? Um yes, I mean many, many, many times um we've you know not quite got it exactly right. And I can think of times where marriages and uh family celebrations are very, very um challenging to do in the events industry yeah. because there's lots of emotions involved mm -hmm. and the time scale the lead-in time can be um, very long or very very short and lots of parties involved and parties as in people yeah and lots of dynamics between all of the people involved so we've been in situations where um, a client has simply said, no, that's not what I asked for, um, when it is. Um, and we we try to get by that nowadays. Um, one of the main tools is to um, do very high level of visualisation, so uh, mood board. So basically we, we draw a picture board um, and a story of the whole event before it happens because mm. then at least there's a reference point without a reference point it comes to hearsay and you know the the client may say no 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 i i i'd never wanted to have that um style of pink flower and we'll say but you you did we were, we were with um you know, all these other people and they, and they no 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 i didn't okay there's obviously a misunderstanding here how can we rectify it we're really sorry about that so it People's expectations and people's um, personalities are very, very challenging to manage. We we call it, it in our particular event sector, we call it the psychology of events. So when we train our new project managers, um, we we try to open their eyes, open their awareness to the huge variety of different emotions that might be involved in an event <clears throat> and the huge um, variety of different circumstantial factors that might arise during the build-up to an event and also we need them to have a fully conversant working knowledge of what's going on in the street so to speak you know what's what's fashion what what are the restaurants what are the shows um, what are the hotels what are the resorts you know what are people wearing all that stuff so those are all 
important things to understand to be able to communicate um, with a client. Um, because if you don't understand the same level, then you're not going to have a clear communication. And the other thing that's necessary is um, we break the chain as much as possible, which means that there are as few people in the communication chain as possible. So as much as we can, it's one project manager, one party planner, one designer, one-on-one -on -one with preferably the client directly. Um, if we have to also work with somebody in between them and the client, that's fine as well. But, but we like to have a short chain as possible. No, that, I, think I probably that's... didn't answer your question, but <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we, we, no, I mean, no, it was it was good, it was good. So I guess in a in a broader sense, I mean, on on this show, we typically kind of in, interview you know founders from tech background. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think rules can still be applied to a startup founder who's in tech or in another industry, for example. So, I guess growing the team. I mean, how how big how big is Steam Traders now? We have. 40 and at a peak period we'd have 240 including freelancers it, right. it, it varies it dramatically yeah. through the seasons of the events and party business so what would you say to a, a founder of, a, of any kind of business that they need to focus on in the beginning and kind of ignore later like ignore until you know further notice how do you mean ignore? I mean, if, if it's something that you focus on in the beginning, it, it may be something that um, carries through. I'm not sure when so, you say... So, for example, um, you know, a lot of founders tend to focus on, you know, raising more money or, you know, trying to get to 100 members of staff or trying to, you know, have a million customers. Like, what's the one thing, like, what's something that founders need to focus on in the beginning? Well, I, can, I, I can't talk about contemporary technology business because I don't know anything about it. But, you know, from my point of view, um, the things that I would be focusing on are the value added through what you do. In other words, how can I put back on the table as much as I'm taking off? So um, it's all very fine to have a business which, you know, is focusing just on the numbers. Um, but you need to put something back as well because that's the only way the cycle will continue to go around that that it's what a universal law of nature that things have to be given to be able to take out and i think that that's water going into a plant growing sun going to a plant growing example um i think that's something that is forgotten dramatically by um contemporary um, Western business nowadays and for me it's always been something which by putting in I've always seemed to get more out it's, it's quite extraordinary and that's not a business plan um, that's an experience and over many many years in business um, it's absolutely weird that you know that um, people don't want to send me an invoice I said please send me an invoice you know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, so it, it's it's what you put in the relationships that you create, and I I don't believe that business should be hostile. I believe that you should be making friends every day that you're doing business. I mean, mm. you know, every every communication you have in business with with a customer in a technology shop um, should be a case of making a friend and a partnership, and um, 
putting something nice into the equation of them taking some of your product. And I think, from my perspective, the world has uh, lost sight of that to a great degree. I mean, I can talk to you on my level about just pure business, but that is what, you know, uh, that's equivalent to reciting the books that I read about business. Um, I've read many, many, many. Mm. Um, but from my personal experience, um, we need to, to put in to get out. And so I think that at the beginning of any deal, what am I putting in? How can I add to this? Not just what can I get out of it? Right. And I guess this lends quite well to why you do so much social good and philanthropy work, right? So I guess where did this desire for philanthropy come from? No idea. Um, when I was about 19, I think, uh, I, you know, I was having a great time, you know, in, in London, all the bands were here and it was really fantastic. And I just got, got it in my head that I should put something back. I uh, don't know where it came from. Um, I, I don't think it was taught at school. I'm not a religious person. Um, it wasn't something my parents told me to do. And so I just thought, you know, what can I do? So I rang up the local social services, local municipal, municipality, the council, and said, you know, I'd like to do some voluntary work. And they said, great, you can deliver meals to old people. Said, great, okay, fine. So I started out <laughs> delivering meals to old people mm. and then after that um, I wanted to do something different and then I started working with hospitals and admissions of children into hospital and in recent years all of that's moved on to um, kindness um, which I'm very deeply involved in at the moment and kindness I see is one of the major tools that we will need to steer us through whatever future scenarios we're going to have on this planet. So for companies and for entrepreneurs and for business people, I would strongly urge that somewhere in the CSR or somewhere within the value system, vision, mission, whatever, um, that there is um, something which is connected to um, kindness, interpreted whichever way you want to interpret kindness, but in with kindness. And in the last few months, um, kindness has take, gone to stepped up to a much greater level. And I'm getting lots of people writing to me from um, local government or from um, hospitals and from large, famous global corporation, corporations um, saying, we'd like to introduce a kindness program into our company. Um, what do you suggest? I'm not actually geared up to do that because I'm only geared up to schools and universities at the moment. I'm not sure I'm going to, you know, press that button. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a field of great expansion right now, and um, I know that because a lot of things I've done over my life have been at the beginning of a cycle, and when the beginning of the cycle, when it starts bubbling, then that means it is going to go mainstream. It's going to it's going to you know, it's going to carry some weight. So were I interested in developing a business in kindness, I think it would be a fantastic business to get into. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm just interested in doing my own thing on that one moment. So 
Awesome. I want to work towards wrapping up now, David, and um, ask some rapid fire questions. So, um, what has or who has been your biggest inspiration? I like reading words from people like Marcus Aurelius. Okay. Uh, Stoic. I like Marcus Aurelius, M A R. No, yeah, I know, the, the Stoic. Yeah, sorry, I thought you said spell it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm a huge fan of stoicism as well. Sorry, that was quite funny. Um, um, I like people like Gandhi. Um, I like the story of Gandhi. Um, yeah, there's okay. a couple. So, uh, favourite podcast? I don't listen to podcasts. Oh, You're no. going to hate me. Delete now, but I just... I, <laughs> Um, the only thing I do listen to is um, TED Talks, if that's called podcast. Okay, know, but, what's your, um, it can be, I guess. Um, what, what's your favourite TED Talk then? Um, I think it, it's a guy, English guy who talks about education. I think his name is Richard something or other. It's, it's quite fantastic. Okay. Um, but I, but I, li- I like listening to those talks and I don't remember names very well of um, contemporary people. It's not because I'm old, but I just like I think about <laughs> other things. <laughs> uh, favourite blog? blog oh my god again you got me sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fine uh favorite book i just actually wrote an article for a paper the other week and it said um i'm a dinosaur uh, looking through a telescope at the future and i went on to like elaborate on some of the things i think is going to happen for the planet um so that's a blog i suppose yeah, um, but <laughs> sorry I, I, you could, i'll give you that diverting <laughs> uh okay so favorite book book well i am i'm currently reading the templars um which is a fabulous book about the um crusades between a thousand and thirteen hundred and it's a by dan Aykroyd, and it's a historic book and it's quite easy to read fascinating and it really explains an awful lot of the stuff that's going on in the middle east and regions of the world right now fascinating mm. book mm. i highly recommend it and I, I just read um one before that was about bees the life of bees which is a novel um can't tell you it's by and <laughs> it's the first book and it's three stories about somebody who's inventing um a hive for bees in the 1850s a farmer who's farming bees in america in 1920 and somewhere in 2070 where people um, go into trees and they have to hand pollinate the fruit for it to grow because there are no bees but there's a lot more than that it's a really good book okay um i might regret this question but uh (laughs) favorite instagram account (laughs) what's that (laughs) Oh dear. Um, so <laughs> the only one I know is the one for our company, obviously. Okay. Um, but I don't contribute to that, but I, you know, so um, it's a good one. I, I do, I do look at that, and when when I get a picture, I like it. Okay. But apart from that, I, I've never used Instagram. Sorry. That's, no worries. Um, so, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Wow, I'm a happy bunny. Um, I am very 
happy and I feel very balanced and I love life. I love every day. I have great opportunities to travel, um, to meet new people, to talk to great people. Great talking to you today. Um, I enjoy my work. Um, I can balance my work. So I can say I'm not going to be taken over by kindness. And I can say I'm not going to kindness projects. I can say I'm not going to be at theme trailers for a month or six weeks or whatever. So I don't really have a lot that I'm looking for, asking for, or wanting for mm. uh, that I don't feel as I've got at the moment. Sorry. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. No, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, what's, uh, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self? 21-year-old self. Keep on rocking. You're the DJ, the original DJ. Spin the decks, spin the decks. Music is your life. Your life is music. That's what advice I'll give. And you're still saying it today, so I feel like you did say that to yourself, actually. Um, <laughs> if you had $100 in your... Or £100, rather. If you had £100... In your favourite city, what would you spend it on? In my favourite city? Yeah. I would give it to somebody who needed it. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's good. Yeah, that's what I do. Okay. But, but it's actually quite fun finding people who need things. You know, um, yeah, finding somebody who genuinely has a need, and often people think they need money but they don't they need something else they need communication or they need um respect or they need somebody to talk to Mm. um or they might need something practical um finding people like that or projects like that is really exciting um and i've been lucky over recent years to find lots of projects like that and i really enjoy supporting where i can um yeah great so I don't know if you knew you would be in this position today when you started, but obviously, you know, Theme Traders has grown to become a massive success and even found you on the TV show um, Secret Millionaires. So, yeah, in terms of where you are at today, um, you know, Theme Traders is worth millions of pounds. What is the yeah. vision that you still have for Theme Traders? Um, well, everything in life should grow and flourish and give, and everything in life has its own um, personality. And that's going to sound a little strange at first off, but basically, when you're involved in a uh, business or commerce or entrepreneurial deal, mm. there are always Um, other factors there are always normally always other people involved Mm. and the combined consciousness of all the people involved is what makes the whole and the whole has its own um, life of its own it has its own consciousness so I would like um, anything I'm involved in now to have its own healthy consciousness and to be happy being involved in the cycle of um, giving and receiving, and growing and nurturing. And so I would just like to be involved in things which are um, flourishing and which are um, 
alive. Mm. No, that's good. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, where, where can they find you? Um, well, this is the part where I usually ma- ask people okay, for no, their social no media. So mailroom at <laughs> kindnessuk.com. How's that? Where? Mail, mailroom Mail at, at, at kindnessuk. Okay. Um, it's all as it sounds k-i-n-d-n-e-s-u-k.com yeah okay cool awesome thanks so much for coming on the show thank you Just want to say another huge thank you to David for coming on the show and I hope you guys got as much out of that as I did because there were so many nuggets in that interview. As always guys thank you so much for tuning in and if you haven't already please subscribe on the Apple Podcasting app or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts and leave a review while you're at it. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time guys keep grinding.